The Medical Alley podcast is brought to you by MentorMate. Custom software needs vary significantly, whether you're powering a medical device, overhauling your backend architecture, or reimagining your patient experience, MentorMate can help. Harnessing the technical excellence of Bulgaria, MentorMate provides end-to-end software services in all sectors of healthcare. With deep expertise in design, development, cloud, and software support, MentorMate helps healthcare clients administer world-class care through technology. Learn more at MentorMate.com. Hello, friends, and welcome to this episode of Bringing the Future Forward, Innovating for Impact, Transforming the Delivery of Treatment, Recovery, and Behavioral Healthcare Solutions. I'm your host, Bobby Patrick, the Vice President of Strategic Growth and Policy for the Medical Alley Association, and today's conversation is an important one. We are fortunate to be joined by several leaders who will share their expertise and insight on many of the most pressing issues impacting the delivery of behavioral healthcare. We have a fantastic panel later in the program hosted by Medical Alley Association's own Frank Duskulki that will have an in-depth conversation on how technology impacts access and outcomes in treatment, recovery, and behavioral health. Before we begin the conversation though, I'd like to thank our sponsors of this Bringing the Future Forward webinar series and have them say a few words about who they are. Let's start with Keith Schoolcraft, Chief Guru CEO from A Couple of Gurus. Hi, my name is Keith Schoolcraft. Uh, I'm the chief guru of a couple of gurus. Uh, we provide uh, managed managed services uh, for our customers as well as managed security. Uh, and I always like to leave the community uh, with some food for thought. So I love the idea of bringing the future forward. Uh, I was recently on an airplane uh, back from New Jersey and I was reading a book. And in the book, uh, I was telling the story of Disney and how Disney, when he had the concept for Disneyland, uh, he had to uh, try 300 times to get financing uh, for for Disneyland. So we would not have Disneyland today uh, if it wasn't for uh, uh, Disney's tenacity. Um, And so that made me think that success has nothing uh, to to do with what we think it is. It has everything to do with how we face failure. So just food food for thought. Uh, Thank you. Proud to be uh, a sponsor of this community. Great. Thank you, Keith. Next up is Kevin Hogan, CEO of Diversified Plastics. Kevin? Uh, Good morning, Bobby. Thank you. And uh, good morning to everybody here. And uh, DPI is very involved in the Medical Alley community with uh, participating in a number of different events. The key thing that we're we're communicating in this and other webinars is our involvement with the Medical Alley Starts program. And DPI is a uh, legacy injection molding company. Uh, we're actually 100% uh, employee owned, so we're a 100% ESOP company. And our focus is to help uh, startup companies in the medical community, either through our legacy molding or our additive manufacturing technology, which is powered by Carbon's uh, DLS engine. And that basically allows companies to get to market much faster with their product prototypes, get to clinicals faster, and be able to cut the time to market considerably. So we like to communicate our involvement, not only with Medical Alley overall, but specifically in the merging and the startup area. And uh, just very happy to support these these broad programs that Medical Alley brings. So thanks, Bobby. Great. Thank you, Kevin. And thanks to both, again, to the couple of gurus and Diversified Plastics for their support of this webinar series and the Medical Alley Association. Today, I'm fortunate to be joined by Dr. Joseph Lee, 
the president and CEO of the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation. Dr. Lee is the eighth president and CEO of the Hazelton Betty Ford Foundation and the first physician to serve in that role. He previously served as medical director for Hazelden Betty Ford's Youth Services, where he established himself as a thought leader on all matters related to addiction, mental health, and recovery. His experience from across the country provide him with an unparalleled perspective on emerging drug trends, co-occurring mental health conditions, and the ever-changing culture of addiction. We're fortunate to have him with us today to talk about how Hazelden Betty Ford is continuing to lead the way in providing hope for and improving the lives of patients and their families around the country and how the events of the last year plus have impacted its work. Dr. Lee, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Bobby. It's awesome to be here. Excellent. So, you know, you became the president and CEO of Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation in June and uh, just a couple months ago. So let's maybe start, let's start here with a, you know, sort of an easy one. Uh, tell us a bit more about your background and, and what your journey was to where you are today. Yeah, you know, I, I'm an immigrant and, and a lot of these stories actually, uh, I've been working for Hazel and Betty Ford for 13 years. I, I didn't tell, but I think it's important to share now because of the context we're in, both of the pandemic and a lot of civil turnover and, and discussion going on. Uh, you know, so I'm an immigrant, uh, a naturalized citizen uh, from Seoul, South Korea originally, but I grew up in Oklahoma, so I'm an Oklahoma Sooners fan. And uh, and I, I did all my schooling there and med school there, and then I did my residency training at Duke University in North Carolina. And then I really cut my teeth at Johns Hopkins in inner city Baltimore. And uh, I learned a lot of lessons there. And so, you know, I'm the first physician CEO uh, and I'm the first non-white CEO of an organization. And, I, and that symbolism doesn't escape me at all. Uh, you know, when I was at Johns Hopkins, there's a story that I tell uh, that really inspired me to do better. Uh, and, and Johns Hopkins is a wonderful institution. But in the mornings uh, in inner city Baltimore, I would work in these schools with social workers, aunties, grandmothers, passion together, care and support uh, for kids there who were really marginalized and didn't have a lot of resources. And then in the afternoon, just a few blocks away, I'd walk to the ivory tower that was Johns Hopkins and I'd see people in this VIP clinic, you know, consultants who'd fly in from across the country to have their kids treated. And everyone was treated well, but the discrepancy in care really struck me. And uh, I really made a vow to myself at that time that I was going to treat every family and every kid I saw as a VIP in my heart. And, and that's something that really aligns with the mission, uh, the proud mission of Hazel and Betty Ford. So it's a, it's a tremendous honor. Uh, and there's a lot of responsibility that comes um, with being this uh, a physician CEO uh, with quality and ethics. And so everything from DEI to what we innovate into the future, uh, I take very seriously. Very interesting. And so sort of building on that about uh, treating all, all families as VIPs, you know, before you became CEO, you were working directly with patients as the leader of Betty, uh, Hazel and Betty Ford's youth continuum. Uh, and, and, and since you're only a short few months removed from that, really that hands-on work, can you tell us a bit more about the, the trends that you saw or are seeing, particularly in the youth population? Yeah, uh, you know, some of the things that we predicted would happen, unfortunately happened, and, and you're seeing it now, and, and you see it in the newspapers. We predicted that more people would uh, slip through uh, the cracks and that a lot of young people and families wouldn't get help. Uh, we predicted that many young people would have uh, a crisis, uh, mental health-wise, and with substances. Uh, the mental, mental health part is getting more attention now, but we predicted this would happen, and unfortunately, it's happening. And historically, in downturns like a pandemic, uh, substance use goes up, mental health rates climb. So we knew there were going to be more people in need. 
And at the same time, we recognize that access to care was going to be difficult. And so there's a story I want to share about an organization that I'm actually really proud of because it speaks to how we vote with our feet and it speaks to the dedication to our mission that our staff have. You know, when the pandemic started, you know, we're in a stigmatized industry resource wise. And so it was very hard for us to get masks. We were paying $6 per surgical mask. We were having it shipped and it was being blocked at customs from China. I mean, it was ridiculous. Our efforts to try to get testing and masks and PPE for our staff. And it was a very scary time. And I was right there on the front line with them. But we knew we had to keep our doors open. We knew we had to do virtual care and a lot of innovative things to help more people. And I want to say, and I'm very proud to say uh, that a year and a half later, uh, we are now um, nearly 90% of our staff are vaccinated. And uh, we uh, made it a requirement uh, to have vaccination starting in May. It's a plan that we were pretty quiet about. We did it very positively. Uh, we actually use treatment principles <laughs> to get people because we're a behavioral change organization. So we use motivational interviewing. We use contingency management, gave prizes out. We made it positive. And now we're about the we're about the safest healthcare facility anyone can enter across the country. And so going from the back of the line, a real underdog story to where we are now, knowing what we needed to do, knowing that we had an uphill climb and trying to help people through this pandemic is a really inspirational story. And I share that because uh, our, our housekeeping staff, our front end staff, our drivers, our nurses, our psychologists, our doctors, our counselors, I'm so proud of their efforts and, and how they're all lock in step because we're a healthcare organization. That means we protect the most vulnerable. We know that people of color and people with substance use disorders are more likely to contract COVID and more likely to have bad outcomes. And so it was really solid what a North Star was. And, uh, and we, we got there. And so it's just something I wanted to share that through this pandemic, it wasn't all doom and gloom. We did a lot of innovative things and uh, we're showing the evidence that we're primed and poised uh, to help people despite the pandemic. It's, you know, and we're going to talk a little bit more about stigma later uh, in, in, our, in our talk here, but it's, it's incredible that that had an impact even on, on the cost of getting something as simple as a surgical mask. And, and you know, and, and everyone was in, those were in demand across the board, but that's, that's pretty incredible. And, and so, you know, as you, as you noted during the pandemic, you know, what you thought would happen, especially with youth was right. That, that the addictions increases and in, increased and, you know, unlike other diseases, as you know, you know, addiction relies on, a, on an intimate social network to recognize it, propel the addict to get help. And the pandemic, again, as you noted, disrupted those intimate social networks. You know, we can't see our friends and family, uh, our coworkers, our teachers, et cetera. And so how has Hazel and Betty Ford adjusted to help and continue to lead the fight against the silent epidemic of despair, suffering, loneliness, depression, and overdosing that has occurred throughout the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Bobby. You know, and I know many of your other guests are going to talk about innovation because this is where innovation comes to play. One of the, the headlines uh, that's uh, well publicized, and there's another one that's not, you know, the one that's well publicized, a lot of people are dying. Overdose rates are going up the pandemic, uh, a lot of people are suffering alone. One thing that's not talked about a lot is that uh, our, um, our disease uh, that we try to help with, addiction and related mental health issues, uh, the way people access care there is a little bit different. You know, uh, people really with addiction or substance use disorders, as we say, um, they need a bit of a nudge. They need the intimate social network of the loved ones, the friends, uh, the communities around them to have that gestalt check to get help. And they need that, um, that love, that how are you doing? Let's go grab a cup of coffee. I'm worried about you. And, and as you can imagine, when those networks are frayed, 
when those networks are strained on their own, when they're dealing with their own problems, you're going to have people fall through the cracks. And that's what we've seen is that our people need a community. And, and a good thing about innovation is, is this, simply put in a scientific term, you know, our organization throughout our history, we're all about this term called recovery capital. That's really been the magic of our organization. Recovery capital, uh, simply put, is uh, it's those variables within a person or the variables outside the person in their environment that really help their recovery journey. And, and the magic of Hazel and Betty Ford has been starting communities of recovery. It's not just a treatment involving family members, building networks of people, making it okay to talk about addiction and bringing it center stage for American for the American public. And so we decided how we're gonna capitalize on that. So we did a number of things. We were already developing a virtual platform for geographically disadvantaged patients. We rolled it out early, you know, and so our recovery go platform happened and we moved tens of thousands of patients instantaneously over into a virtual platform. And uh, we have more plans in the future. We started to double down on our digital products. We started to double down on our consulting, our prevention programs in schools that people don't even know we have. We have a very robust prevention line, by the way. And, and so we started to think about how can we affect recovery capital and help people in non-traditional ways because of the pandemic? And so we kept our brick and mortar open, of course, but we knew that people needed more care than ever before. And we're going to do even more stuff into the future. We're going to expand into mental health. Uh, we have really great strategies to broaden our ramp, really um, meet people where they're at, uh, improve our family care, share our know-how with the rest of the industry in the world. And so um, the, the pandemic has really galvanized innovation within the organization, and, uh, and we're feeling very purposeful. Great. And so you, you mentioned, uh, you know, rolling out your, your virtual care platform and, and you know, so that, that ties in together with keeping not only your, uh, your, your comments earlier about keeping your staff and, and, and uh, safe, but also your patients. And can you talk a little bit more about that virtual care platform and rolling it out and how was it received by patients? How, you know, was, did the uptake go up over time? Can you just talk a little bit more about that experience? Yeah, actually, the seasons change with virtual care. So when we rolled it out, a lot of patients were grateful. So I'll just give you a little anecdote because I was actually using the virtual care platform to see patients. So I know exactly how it worked. And uh, it worked really well. We had the capacity in our virtual platform. Now everyone has it. But at that time, we had the unique capacity to run group therapy as well as individual. And we could do psychiatric visits, medical visits. We could run all kinds of visits through the platform. Uh, there was a communication relay built in, consents and release of information signed. So um, it worked out pretty well uh, for us at first. And um, I had patients who were like anxious tell me, you know, I feel really empowered doing virtual care because I can roll out of bed with a bowl of cereal and talk to you virtually. Because, you know, for a lot of patients, one of the barriers is the, is the difficulty and perhaps the intimidation of finding a therapist office or driving someplace. And so giving them more options uh, was great. Uh, but I want to say that the narrative has since changed a little bit. People are now clamoring for in-person again. They can't wait for us to have better safety protocols because they want in-person as well. And I think what you're going to see in the future is a diversification of how we reach people. People are going to reach people uh, or get connected in hybridized ways in lots of different manners. And we're prepared for that. So is that something that you will work with the patient on ahead of time where there will be certain visits scheduled for in-person and some for virtual or what sort of be as the patient is sort of adapting, meeting them where they are? How will that work? Well, we actually had a plan for this hybridized thing where people could choose. You want to have the patient choose what is preferential for them. And so some people, for example, who are geographically far away may just want to continue to do virtual care. 
other people really want that in-person touch. They're very tired of web platforms. <laughs> they want that human connection. And we've all heard this, right, in business meetings and whatnot. And so there's a longing on all sides. Some people want apps. Some people want uh, portals. Some people want uh, their families engaged in different ways. So the only hiccup in this has been the Delta variant, because uh, we were actually piloting ways to do in-person outpatient in a safe way. We still have those pilots going with vaccination status and all these protocols and testing. Uh, but the Delta has made it harder for us to do in-person outpatient on mass right away. But we're going to get there. And I think our future state is going to be a hybridized version where people can choose their path in how they want to interface uh, with their recovery. Very interesting. And, I, you know, and I, you know, I grew up in a small town in southern Minnesota, and I know that having the virtual care options certainly would be impactful for people that I grew up with, um, not just from, you know, not having to drive, but also, you know, and again, coming back to the stigma piece, not having to, you know, park near the therapist uh, office or whatever. So, so really powerful stuff there. And so talking about that moving forward and, and, and your plan to roll it out, do you, do you think it will stick? I mean, is this something that in, even as we get further on three, four years from now, do you think that the virtual piece will continue to stick across the board or will it be something that is more just for rural-ish or far out areas? You know, I think it's here to stay. Uh, and, and I think people will choose and, and demographically people will have different preferences on what they want. Uh, but I think that as a real platform, it's been proven. I kind of wish we had done it years before, you know, and I think everybody did after the pandemic. Um, but it's something that's here to stay. And it's just really the tip of the iceberg. Uh, the ways that we can improve the kind of coaching and support and connection. Virtual care is just the start of it. How we can interface with people, how we can collect data on how they're doing uh, and improve outcomes and engagement. Uh, we can also interact with our families in a hybridized way, if you can imagine that. So some of it will be in person, some of it will be virtual. You can uh, give digital products for teachings and learnings. And so it's going to be a, a hybridized um, model uh, that gets at people. And it really has the, the customer or the patient's focus. And I call it an ecosystem where you're building an ecosystem around the person. So instead of this is what we do come to us, it's we have these services to build around you. And, and we're uniquely positioned to do that because we have a research center, we have a graduate school, we have a publishing arm, we have a digital products line. And so because of that, we can integrate these business units together to really give everything that the patient needs and their family needs. That's really interesting. And so that that's really in, in sort of, you know, getting into what, what my next, next question was going to be, was sort of aligning everything that Hazelden Betty Ford does Around, to, around the patient to create more of an integrated ecosystem. And so putting together all those, all the pieces that you have, but along also the innovations or digital prescription digital therapeutics or other technology-based solutions together to sort of, to, to really build that around the patient and their family. Is that, is that where you see things going? Yeah, absolutely. To make it very, very concrete, let's say there's a person whose uh, significant other or partner uh, goes to treatment and let's say they have children at home. So while that person's getting treatment in a hybridized way, digitally in person, we will offer parallel family for services for the entire family. We have a children's program for their children. Our prevention programs may be in their schools. Our digital products will be able to help them with skill building and our recovery capital services, everything from peer coaching uh, to educating other people and reducing stigma will help them interface with an environment that is more friendly and accepting and dignified as they interface with care. So our organization partnering with others can really touch people on multiple points, not just a treatment trajectory, 
And uh, that's really, that's, uh, that's an incredibly um, bright uh, future that we have ahead of us and uh, we're ready to seize it. That's very cool. That's very cool. So shifting gears a little bit now, uh, you know, when you were announced as CEO, you said one of your top priorities would be advancing uh, Hazelden Betty Ford's diversity, equity, inclusion efforts. And so can you tell us a little bit more about how you are prioritizing this and how you're broadening the banner of Hazelden Betty Ford to reach more people while also expanding opportunities for those who are employed uh, at Hazelden Betty Ford? Yeah, you know, in our rich history, uh, we've always spoken for marginalized people. You know, uh, we talked about the stigma of addiction long before it became a popular thing to talk about. However, we did so for a narrow demographic, and we're very humble about that. And, and what I recognize when I work with uh, diverse communities is that they don't have the same stories of their of their grandmothers or their aunts or their uncles going to Hazel and Betty Ford or, you know, going to, to a recovery community. And we have to create those bridges. We got to be incredibly humble on in how we do that. And so we have to improve access to care. We have to build trust with these communities. We want to impact millions of people. And some of it is not just us treating the person. How can we help the clinics in those communities? How can we train those clinicians so that they have fidelity to a model and skill sets? How can we give them digital products and improve the services? So there's multiple pathways to help those people. But this also has to be reflected in our leadership, our, our board diversity, our leadership diversity. These things are not lost on me. Uh, and I think that we have to think about equity in our hiring practices, have pipelines within. To give you a real simple example of that, things I'm planning on right now, we have a graduate school. So, you know, everyone's talking about workforce turnover and we have our share, but we're really privileged in that we have this graduate school where we can train people to be counselors at our organization. We have this pipeline that's built in. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to enhance scholarships. We're going to look at loan forgiveness programs and paid internships and uh, duly integrated uh, counselor tracks where they can do both mental health and substance use disorders. So if you can imagine a, a person from a diverse community entering our graduate school, if they perform well, they're promised a job from the beginning, their loans are gonna be forgiven and they have the ability to get an enhanced license, that's a value proposition win. And so I'm less caught up in the semantics. I really want the practical opportunities and the pipelines because that's how, that's how we're really going to accomplish goals with equity. And it's a deep commitment I have. And I'm very passionate about it. Well, that, that's very cool. That's very cool. So I'd like to close our conversation today with a couple of questions about uh, how addiction treatments and how it fits within the broader discussions around the ongoing transformation of care. And so, you know, despite a growing public awareness and understanding of addiction as a disease and its impact beyond just the immediate individual, addiction and recovery services do not receive the same resources and attention as other types of care do it. And you noted that at the beginning, you know, it, it, it doesn't receive the same level of philanthropy or doctors to the field. And so what do you think is, is the root cause of this? And, and you've hit on this a couple of times, but I'd really like you to sort of expand on that a little bit more. No, stigma is more than someone being ashamed of their story. Stigma cuts across right to resources and talent and money. And so while we're being really creative with different ways to engage people, we also have to reckon with the fact that at some point, our patients, the people that we love and care for, also deserve the same level of care as people who have heart disease. They don't just deserve an app or virtual care. They deserve it all. And when you see a patient and a family member, they go to a hospital, a beautiful hospital, uh, and they walk into the atrium and they ask where the mental health or substance use services are. Chances are they get sent to the back annex. And the message sent to them from the beginning is very clear that they're a second class citizen with a second class disease state. 
And that's something we can't have. And so as a model of care, we want to mainstream addiction services. And so many of your other guests you're going to have on later, we want to partner with bright minds like that so that we can reduce stigma, improve resourcing. Because at some point in this journey, we have to have that discussion because the people that we love and care for uh, deserve better. They deserve more. Yeah, very, very good. Very good. And so sort of building on that, you know, where do you see addiction treatment fitting within the the context of the rest of healthcare, you know, you, you mentioned it being on par and, and how, how do we get there? How do we integrate it into overall care delivery moving forward? Well, it's certainly not our efforts uh, alone, but there's a lot of efforts to integrate into primary care in other models, uh, even outside the health system and, and peer support systems. And uh, those kinds of integration experiments, I think will be successful. And I think we'll hit upon ways uh, to get ahead of people, you know, at the height of the opioid epidemic, more people were dying from the opioid prescription than the side effects of any procedure uh, that was uh, that they were undergoing. But the emphasis was on the procedure <laughs> and not on the side effects of the opioids. Through better integration, better screening, uh, weaving in and feathering in uh, not just skill sets, but talented people who can recognize addiction early uh, by making those kinds of investments throughout communities, uh, we can reach that integration. We have some prime examples of, of how do we do how we do that. We have a patient uh, patient care network where we partner with hospitals and large healthcare systems to improve their screening, improve their services, uh, to build their services up in some ways. We partner with schools and other services that even before they get to the hospital setting, we can maybe do some early intervention work. And so there's lots of promising um, early results in integration that I think will uh, build into something that is uh, uh, much more deserving, uh, something that our patients really need. Well, that's excellent. And, you know, you, it's, it's been great talking to you. You really have a clear vision for, you know, how to build on the success of Hazel and Betty Ford over the time and how to really engage with the healthcare system overall and, and bring addiction treatment uh, tr and recovery to the forefront as a typical piece of healthcare and not something that's different than all the rest of it. And so I, I'm, I'm really excited just to, to, see, to see your work and, and see that grow. Is, is there anything else you'd like to add uh, before we wrap up here? No, I think you, you've covered it really well. And I'm really honored during National Recovery Month that you've given us this platform to reach more people, uh, to start to normalize addiction treatment as standard medical service for people. You know, and I, and I hope that people can kind of feel the passion that we have in our organization for our mission. We really believe our mission is a mission of love. At the end of the day, all the science is cool and all the innovations are necessary, uh, but we have a mission of love and, and we're going to do more and we're going to do better and we're going to build bridges and have more partners. And so uh, despite the pandemic, there's many exciting things. And so thanks for having us. Excellent. And it was, it was an honor speaking with you today. Uh, we're extremely fortunate to have you and Hazel and Betty Ford as part of the Medical Alley community. And uh, we look forward to working with you to continue delivering hope and healing to patients and their families. So thank you again. Thank you.